Well, I'm excited because this morning the passage is one of my absolute favorite passages in Scripture. And before we get into it, I thought I would explain why. Now, to do that, I need to ask how many people out there remember those prehistoric days of life before high-definition television? <laughs> right? So, and, I, and you can't cheat. I don't mean like satellite and cable. I mean the old aerial antennas where you got maybe four channels. This is what we had when I grew up. See, the thing about watching TV on those is the picture wasn't all that great. You couldn't always tell even exactly what you're watching. It was fuzzy. It was static-filled. People would come up and they're like, what are you watching? You're like, I, it's either Sesame Street or a football game. I don't, I don't know, but I think Oscar just got a first down. So, like, the picture was just bad, right? And then how many of you remember that first time you walked into the Best Buy or wherever and you saw high-definition television? It just stopped you in your tracks, right? And it wasn't because you'd never seen whatever was on it. You'd seen a football game or a movie or a TV show. What was different? What was different is that that same thing was now crystal clear. It just had this vibrancy, these rich colors and these contours and details that you'd never seen before. In fact, people are saying that now with HDTV, it's actually changed the way you and I watch TV. Researchers have shown that we actually are more immersed into the program, that it has more of an effect on us because it's, it's just more real, and it does something to us that draws us in. Now, why am I talking about TVs? Well, I think the same reason that we want to buy HD TVs because we want to see things more clearly is exactly why we need passages like this. Because my fear is that a lot of us have a similar experience with the gospel. I know I do at times. Instead of seeing it in all of its high-definition beauty, we tend to sometimes lose sight of it and it starts to look a little bit more like it's on one of those static-filled old TV sets. We don't we get so used to it just being blurry that it stops being all that exciting, if we're honest. It loses that wow factor. What I think all of us need is a clearer picture of this gospel. We need a high-definition gospel that helps us see the grace that we've been singing about all the more clearly. And that's exactly what I think Paul gives us this morning in Ephesians 2, 1-10. You know how there's some movies that are just made for HD? This is one of those Bible passages that, man, this passage is made for high def. It paints one of the most rich and vivid pictures in all the Bible of how God saved us. So as we look at it this morning, my one hope and my prayer as we go through this passage is that all of us will see the gospel more clearly and in more breathtaking detail than we've ever seen it. And as we look at it, as we look at this gospel, what we're going to see is that it is a gospel of grace. In fact, as we go through it, one of the things I hope you notice is that grace just pops off the page at you. In fact, here's how we're going to break it down so you know where we're going. In verses 1 to 3, we're going to see that you and I were desperate for grace. Desperate for grace. Then in verses 4 to 7, we're going to see how we were delivered by grace. And finally, in verses 8 to 10, we'll see how we are now debtors to grace. So that's where we're going. Desperate for grace, delivered by grace, and debtors to grace. That is the gospel in HD. But now, as we start the first point and look at how desperate we were, I do need to warn you. So this, 
Think of this as the disclaimer before the movie. See, the thing about high definition is, yes, you can see all those beautiful scenes much more clearly. But you also see all the ugliness that much more clearly. And the reality is, in verses 1 to 3, there's some really ugly truth about us. So what makes it, what it makes crystal clear is that you and I were really, really desperate for grace. In fact, we're going to see three things that show us just how desperate. We're going to see who we were, what we did, and what awaited us. So look at verse 1 and see first who it is we are. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul doesn't waste any time here. Right away, he just cuts to the chase and confronts us with the ugly reality of who we were apart from grace. And it's not pretty. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't start off saying, and you were pretty good and just needed Jesus to be made a little better. If you have that translation, throw it away and get a new one. He doesn't say, you were just broken and needed to be fixed. You were sick and needed to be healed. No, Paul says, apart from grace, you were dead and needed to be made alive. This helps us remember, we couldn't do a thing about this. We couldn't just change our lives any more than a corpse just gets up and walks out of the morgue. We were dead. Then in verses 2 to 3, Paul goes on to explain what it is that we did. What does it mean that we walked in sin? So look with me at verse 2. He says, We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So Paul's telling us here that the way that you and I walked in sin, the way that showed up in our lives, is that all of us followed the wrong things. Instead of following God, we followed the world, we followed the devil, and we followed our own flesh and desires. And all of these show us just how desperate we were. So first, we followed the course of this world. Now, we don't use that expression a lot, so what, is, what does that mean? Well, I thought about it, one of the pictures that came to my mind of what it means to follow the course of the world is, have you ever seen one of those little rubber duck races they do for charity sometimes? I grew up in a rural place, so I'm never sure what things were really weird that I'm used to, that nobody else... <laughs> so even if you've never seen it, bear with me. What they do is they sell these little yellow ducks for charity. You pay a dollar or something, when they have a number on them. Then they dump hundreds, thousands of ducks into a river, and they just see which duck makes it downstream fastest. Now, I say that because, do you know where those little ducks go? They go wherever the river takes them. That's all they do is they follow the course of the river. So you and I were a lot like those little ducks. We just simply went wherever the world took us. We didn't try to swim upstream. We didn't offer resistance. We just simply went with the flow. And where it led us was deeper and deeper into sin. We were no different than the world. Whatever it said to do, we did it. Paul says it wasn't just the world, though. He says we also actually followed the devil, or as he calls him here, the prince of the power of the air. Now, I know that we don't talk about the devil that much anymore. It's a little taboo. 
And if we, don't, if we do talk, it's usually not seriously. In fact, when I say that, my guess is one of two pictures comes in your mind. Either some little cartoonish red figure with horns and a pitchfork, or you picture some dark, horrifying scenes straight out of some terror movie. Friends, what we need to realize this morning is two things. The devil is real and powerful, and his goal is not to scare you. It's to seduce you. He's not trying to get you to start screaming. What he's trying to do is get you to stop believing. See, because Satan doesn't mind if you're moral. He really doesn't. Or even if you go to church, he's great with that. What Satan hates is when people trust and worship Jesus. That's what he can't stand. And Paul says here that apart from grace, you and I, all of us, were his followers. Just let that sink in for a moment. My guess is you didn't come to church today preparing to be told that one time you were a Satan follower. But we were. This is how ugly it is. I told you it was going to be ugly I told you that we're really desperate for grace. But as if that wasn't bad enough, I hate to say it actually gets worse. Because Paul says, as we walked in sin, we weren't being forced to do it by the world. We weren't being forced to do it by Satan. We were actually living the way we wanted to live. We were carrying out the desires of our body and mind. In fact, we lived like we were always at Burger King. Do you remember Burger King's old motto? Have it your way. That was our life in a nutshell. We had it our way. We said what we wanted. We lived the way we wanted. We did whatever we wanted. The problem was that we wanted all the wrong things. It didn't matter what God said. All that mattered was whether we wanted it. We were like Israel in the book of Judges where it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That sounds familiar, I bet. The problem with doing whatever you think is right is that the book of Proverbs tells us there is a way that seems right to a man. Seems right, but its end is the way to death. And if you look at verse 3 here, what we see is that following the way of the world, the devil, and the flesh was leading us to something far worse than just death. We were desperate for grace because of what awaited us, because of how we were living. Paul says there that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Walking in our sin and doing what we wanted was leading us step by step to an eternity filled with the wrath of God. And friends, there's there's almost no words for this wrath. This wrath of God is, is unimaginably horrifying. The Bible describes it as as a relentless, unquenchable fire, as utter darkness of never-ending torment, cut off completely from joy and hope, and worst of all, from God. If that doesn't scare you, you don't understand what it is. And in fact, the only thing scarier than what the wrath of God is, is knowing that you and I were both destined to face it forever. Paul goes out of his way here to make sure we realize that none of us is off the hook. He says, among whom we all once lived. 
Every single one of us deserves that wrath because every single one of us has lived the way we wanted instead of the way God commanded. And when we realize this, as we read this passage and we think about what it's saying, what it should do is it should take our breath away. In fact, have you ever been in one of those situations where you're driving and something happens where all of a sudden, let's say there's a semi just coming right at you, you're thinking, this is unavoidable. Like, something bad is about to happen. Your life flashes before your eyes. You brace yourself for whatever's coming. You think, this is it. And then at the last minute, somebody swerves in your car, and you are fine. But how are you feeling? You're left breathless and probably shaking as you realize what almost happened. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 is meant to do to us. To leave us breathless and shaking as we realize what almost happened. Because these verses give us a high definition picture of what life apart from grace looks like. We were helpless and hopeless following our desires, the devil, and the world as we marched toward the wrath we deserved. In a word, we were desperate for grace. But then, then in verse 4 come two of the most life-changing words you will ever hear. But God. The pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones said these two words, but God, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole gospel. Because we were rebels, but God. We were dead, but God. We were destined for wrath, but God. The gospel is the most stunning turn of events that the world has ever seen, and all of it hinges on those two little words, but God. And now, the good news is, after we've just looked at how bad things really were, we didn't skirt around it, we faced it head on and saw how bad they were, now we can see just how good the good news really is. And I love these next verses because one of my former pastors used to compare this section to how a jeweler will show off their diamonds. I don't know if you remember the last time you bought diamonds, especially guys, but when you go in, what they do is you pick a diamond out of the case and they'll take it out. And you know what they do? They hold it up against a black backdrop. You know why they do that? It's because against a black backdrop, the brilliance of the diamond shines all the more clearly. And that's what Paul's doing here. In verses 1 to 3, he just held up the dark black background of our sin. And he did it so that now, in verses 4 to 7, he can hold up this diamond of grace and say, look at this. Look at how grace shines in light of what we just read. And so what we're going to see here is that after we were desperate for grace, the good news of the gospel is that we are now delivered by grace. And just like in our first point, we saw who we were, what we did, and what awaited us. We're going to do something similar here, but now we're going to look at who God is and what God did and now what awaits us. So look with me first in verse 4 to see who God is. He says, But God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So we see two really important things about God here. He's rich in mercy, and he loved us with a great love. So think about that first one. God is rich in mercy. It doesn't just say he's, he's merciful. No, no, he's rich in mercy. He has an unlimited wealth of mercy. In fact, you think about how, how rich is he? Well, I thought maybe this comparison would help us. So there's a guy out there, maybe you've heard of him, his name's Bill Gates, right? He's got a little bit of money. He's doing okay for himself. In fact, some might even call him rich. Actually, he's so rich, I don't know if you knew this, but that for Bill Gates to spend his whole fortune, he would have to spend $6 million a day, every day, for 30 years. Think about that. $6 million a day, every day, 30 years. The point is that it would be hard for Bill Gates to go broke even if he tried. But here's the catch. He could. Eventually, the money could run out. But not with God. God's richer in mercy than that. His wealth and mercy is unlimited. And here's why this matters. Have you ever struggled with the same sin again and again and again? Could be pride. Could be jealousy of what those people down the street have. Wishing your life was more like theirs. Could be ingratitude for what God's given you. Could be lust. It could just be, honestly, just going through the motions of following Jesus without your heart really being in it. Whatever it is, when you fail for the millionth time, have you ever had that, <clears throat> that nagging thought, this is it. I'm, I'm sure God has got to be fed up this time. I've gone back to the well one too many times. Surely any mercy, I know he's merciful, but after this, any mercy that has my name on it has got to be used up. And maybe you don't even say that out loud, but slowly your heart starts to kind of just distance yourself just a little bit. And you think the mercy's all gone. If that's you, friends, the good news is that our God is not some middle-class God whose mercy is on a budget. Our God is rich in mercy. So he's got plenty for you. Whether you're here this morning and you've come to him seven billion times and you need more, or whether you're here and you've never come to God for mercy, God is rich enough to supply all of the needs you have for mercy. But that's not all. Because Paul tells us that he's not just rich in mercy. He also loved us with a great love. Now, it might, you might have noticed that loved is in the past tense. So is he saying, whoa, whoa, does he love us now? Yes, of course, but Paul's doing something here. He puts it in the past tense because he wants to focus us in on the ultimate way that God loved us. Because more than anything else God's ever done, God has ultimately demonstrated his love on the cross. That's where we see it most clearly. We see it a lot of places. But on the cross is where it's most clear. Paul tells us that in Romans 5. He says, God shows his love for us. Now, while we were still sinners, you could say, while we were still following the world, still following the devil, still following our flesh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it goes on. Remember that wrath that awaited us? Paul says, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, 
much more shall we be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. That's what Jesus did for us. That's a great love. That's why we sing songs like how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. God's love for us was so great that when we were most desperate for grace, he gave his only son to deliver us by grace. Okay, so that's who God is. He's rich in mercy, and he loved us with a great love. Now in the next couple of verses, in 5 and 6, take a look at what God did. How did he show that love? It says, But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what did God do? First, he made us alive. We saw earlier that we were dead. And just in case you'd forgotten, Paul reminds us here, we were dead in our trespasses. And the fact that God does this right here, this is what makes Christianity miraculous. See, there are other religions out there. And in other religions, people can convert. Someone can explain the principles of Islam, of Buddhism, of Hinduism, And people can make a choice to follow those principles. That's not out of the ordinary. But there's only one place, and that's in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we find a message that makes dead people come to life. That is the miracle of Christianity. Friends, we need to remember this because sometimes I hear people talk about their story of how they became a Christian as though it was something boring or mundane. Like, oh, I I just... I grew up in a Christian home and sometime I prayed a prayer and life's been fine. Like, friend, you were dead and now you're alive. That is the most incredible story you could ever have. And we need to remember that. This Christianity is miraculous in a way that nothing else is. And how does God do that? How does he make people live? He does it through his word. When God speaks, even dead people listen. And in case we were not sure about that, you remember Lazarus? Lazarus is dead in the tomb. But when Jesus shows up and speaks, Lazarus, come out. You know what happened? Lazarus came out and he came out alive. And that's exactly what happens when God makes us alive through this gospel. There was a time when I was dead and God said, Dan, live. And I'm alive. I can't help but wonder this morning, what's going on in this room this morning? My guess is in a a group this big, some people walked in here dead. And my guess is that right now, there is someone to whom God is saying, live. Hear this this message of mercy and come to life. Know me. So if that's you, friend, do not resist him. Come to Jesus and see this God of mercy that we're talking about. And this truth is also what gives us hope when we have family or friends that don't know Jesus. Because when it feels impossible, if you have these relationships where you say, we've been talking to them for years, doesn't feel like we're getting anywhere, I don't think they're ever going to figure it out. 
Well, we look at this passage and we remember none of us figured it out. None of us just got our act together. We were dead. But God, because he's rich in mercy, made us alive. So friends, keep praying for those spiritually dead people in your life. And keep telling them the good news about the God who's rich in mercy. Because that God can make dead people live. And Paul goes on to say that God also raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, have you ever thought about what, what does that mean to be seated with Christ? Is it kind of like a, a wedding reception where you get the seating assignments and you really hope you got the good table? Or maybe it's like somebody offering you good seats at the game or at the race this weekend. No, it's, it's way better than that, friends, and here's why. Because what Paul's talking about here, the key to understanding it is to remember where it is that Jesus is seated. He's seated in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. But most importantly, he's seated on the throne. Because when God seated Jesus at his right hand, it was so that he could reign as king. And so when Paul says that God seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places, it was so that we might reign with Jesus. Jesus promised this in Revelation 3. Listen to this. He said, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you see the, the staggering reversals that are going on here in the gospel? In verses 1 to 3, we were dead, but God made us alive. In verses 1 to 3, we were being ruled by the world, the flesh, and the devil. But now, we're promised that we will rule with King Jesus. This is incredible. But that's not even all. Because as amazing as that is, it's more amazing to not just see how God delivered us by grace. It gets incredible when you see why he did. And to find out why, Look at verse 7. It says, So that, so here's the purpose, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, if you're in Christ, the reason God rescued you is so that he can show you just how gracious he is forever. See, God wasn't done showing you grace when he saved you. Oh, no. He was just getting warmed up. He showed you grace so he could keep showing you grace after grace after grace after grace. All of it in the form of kindness to you in Christ Jesus. Can you wrap your minds around this? He took on the future. He being Jesus took on the future that you and I deserved in verses 1 to 3. That wrath, Jesus took that future so that he could give us his future in verses 4 to 7. Do you see that? He died where we should have died so that we could reign with him where he rightfully reigns. And he did all of it so that we could see this future of never-ending grace. I love how Kevin DeYoung ends his little story of the Bible for kids. He says, One day there will be nothing but the best days. Day after day after day after day. And that is what awaits you, Christian. That's what it means to be delivered by grace. 
And that brings us to our third and final point. So we've seen we were desperate for grace. We've seen how God delivered us by grace. And now let's take a look at how we are debtors to grace. By the time we get to verse 8, Paul's given us this beautiful, clear picture of the gospel in the first seven verses. But now he wants to make absolutely sure we didn't miss the fact that this gospel is a gospel of grace. So look at 8 to 10. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, now I said that this third point is called, we're debtors to grace. But before we unpack that, I need to make sure I clarify what I mean by that. First, let me tell you what I don't mean. I don't mean that grace is a debt that you or I can or should even try to repay. Sadly, I do think, I know people that see Christianity this way. They say things like, after all God's done for me, this is the least I could do for him. Or, God gave you his best, so you should give him yours. Now, I, I know and I believe that people usually mean well when they say that. But the reality is what they're communicating is not the gospel of grace. Because God doesn't give us grace so we can pay him back. In fact, if we repaid him, it wouldn't be grace. It would be alone. And friends, salvation isn't alone. It's God giving us something we could never afford. The good news of the gospel is there's no repayment plan with grace. Okay, so that's what I don't mean by saying we're debtors to grace. What do I mean? What I mean is that when you look at your salvation, you clearly and gladly recognize that you owe everything to grace. There's nothing that you paid. This is exactly what we mean when we sing songs like, Jesus paid it all. And then what? All to him I owe. Or, owe to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. What we mean when we sing those songs is that from beginning to end, we owe our salvation to grace and grace alone. And that's exactly the point Paul's trying to drive home here. So what he does here is, ironically, to show us grace, he makes three points about works. What he shows us is that salvation is not by our works. Then he shows us that salvation is by God's work. And finally, that salvation is for good works. So first, salvation is not by our works. And Paul said it two different ways here. He says, this is not your own doing, and it's not a result of works. And I think he says it twice because Paul knows our hearts. He knows how easily you and I can take God's grace and twist it into something that we think we earned or deserve. We can all fall into the trap of thinking that we have to be good enough or read our Bible enough or pray enough or stay out of enough trouble for God to accept us. But what Paul is saying loudly and clearly here is that you can't do enough to be saved or to stay saved. It's not your own doing It's not a result of works. So let me say two quick things about this by way of application. First, notice why Paul drills this home. He says, so that no one may boast. Friends, God saves us by grace so that none of us can take any credit. And when we realize this truth, what it should do is it should make us the most humble people around. Because we know we owe everything to grace. 
That's why Paul says elsewhere, what do you have that you didn't receive? It's all been given to you, friends. So my prayer is that I and we would live like we believe this, and we would live lives marked by humility. Second, this truth should also free you to rest. Because salvation is not your own doing, you can stop trying to perform to get God's grace or to keep it. There's an old hymn I love that says this way better than I could ever say it. It says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. So friends, if you're here and you are just weary this morning, you've been playing the game of religion, trying to check all the right boxes and do all the right things, and you're just exhausted, lay your deadly doing down down at Jesus' feet and stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. We can rest in God's favor. Now, the second way Paul shows us that we're debtors to grace here is by showing us that we're saved by faith in God's work. I don't know if you caught this, but did you notice back in verses 4 to 7 that it was, it was all about God, actually? God was the one rich in mercy. God was the one who made us alive. God was the one who raised us and seated us with Christ. And God is the one who's going to show us the riches of his grace. Now, like an exclamation point, Paul adds in verses 8 to 10, it's by grace you've been saved. Well, well, whose grace? God's grace. It's the gift of God. We are his workmanship that he created. And I love this because every Christian is a handcrafted work of God. In our age, we love that type of stuff, right? The artisan, handmade, craftsmanship. Well, only God can make a Christian. And he gives salvation as a gift to be received by the empty hands of faith. That's why we sing, to God be the glory. Great things he has done. He gets the glory because he did the work. Finally then, while we're not saved by good works, we are saved for good works. He says in verse 10, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this is really important because this is the part we can often miss. Paul wants to make sure we see that just because there's nothing we can do to be saved, being saved doesn't mean we do nothing. Let me say that one more time. This is important. Just because there's nothing we can do to save ourselves doesn't mean that once we're saved, we do nothing. No, when God created you in Christ Jesus, he custom made you for good works. That's what you were designed to do. That's the blueprint. That's that's the function you were given was to walk in good works. In fact, here's one way that's helpful to think about this passage in Ephesians 2. You can say that the gospel is about changing the way you walk. Here's what I mean. When we encounter Jesus in the gospel, we're rescued from walking in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. That's how we walked. And now, after we encounter Jesus, we're recreated to walk in the good works that were prepared beforehand for us. And all of that is grace. That is why we are debtors to grace and grace alone. Friends, let me just, let me conclude this way this morning. When we started, I talked about all of our need to see the gospel more clearly. 
What I don't want is for any of us to see grace in this fuzzy, flickering, vague kind of way where it's just not all that exciting. Because not only is that bad for us, but to be honest, who's going to invite their friends over to watch the big game when the picture looks that bad? What I want is I want your heart to be thrilled. Just like that first time you saw high-definition TV and you thought, I've seen this before, but I've never seen it like that. I've never seen this little detail. I've never seen how rich that part is. In fact, my guess is for many of you, when you first experienced high def, one of the things you did is, hey, hey, come see this. You've got to see how clear, how beautiful, how stunning this picture is. So I, I hope and I pray that as we walk through Ephesians 2, God is doing something in your heart to make you say, oh yeah, I knew that, but that's so clear there. That's so stunning. Hey, you've got to come meet this Jesus that I've met in Ephesians 2. That's what I want. Because friends, this gospel, the reality is it's more beautiful than any of us can see with our limited sight. We're still only seeing in part. But I hope all of us see it just a little more clearly. And I want me, let me leave you with this quote from Tim Keller that I think sums up what we just saw in high definition. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Friends, that is the gospel. And that is a gospel worth seeing clearly. Let me pray. Father, thank you that Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is in our Bibles. Even more than being in our Bibles, thank you that it's real and it's true. That if we're in Christ, this is like reading our biography. People say, what's your life look like? And I say, well, once I was dead, but God, being rich in mercy, made me alive. And he did it so that he could show me kindness. And in fact, what I'm doing now is I'm living out the life. I'm walking in the good works that he prepared beforehand for me. That's my story, Father, and that's the story of everyone whom you've rescued here this morning. So I pray that you would thrill our hearts with that truth. God, let it not be some fuzzy, vague picture where nobody's excited about that. This is a gospel we need to see clearly, and I pray you would do that, and I pray you would do that even for some for the first time today that they've never really understood this, this word gospel or this idea of what it means to follow Jesus. But I pray that through your word, that has become clearer to them today. So Father, thank you that we can sing this. Thank you that we can pray about it. Thank you that we can hear it in your word. And most of all, thank you that we can experience it for ourselves firsthand. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.